Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm 102 Point Never, and this is the LSQ Podcast. It's Jenny Ellisky. Welcome to episode 59. Thanks so much for pressing play. I gotta tell you, right out the gate, this conversation with experimental electronic producer and composer Daniel Lopatin of 10 Tricks Point Never was one of my favorite interviews in the podcast so far. Just a fascinating dude whose music I've been intrigued by for many years, whether via 10 Tricks Point Never or the score for Uncut Gems from a couple of years ago, or even his musical direction of the Super Bowl halftime show with The Weeknd back in early February. The Weeknd um, and Lo Patton have been collaborators for a minute, and The Weeknd also executive produced the excellent 10 Tricks Point Never album Magic 10 Tricks Point Never that came out last year, but I digress. I loved hearing Dan talk about his philosophy that music and art should be an embodying thing and find out more of what he means by that as we get into this conversation. We began where I always do with his earliest creative impulses. Let's go. I'm, I'm intrigued about uh, when you first not just felt a kind of felt creativity, but also when you started to hear the sound, hear sounds the way that you hear them um, in the way that sparks the things you make. Yeah. Um, When I was young, there were these tapes that my dad had, these jazz fusion tapes that he had dubbed. They really had a big effect on me because they had synthesizer sounds all over them. It was like, you know, Return to Forever, Chikoria's band in the 70s. I mean, it's really geeky stuff, like... It's like it's like the kind of person would like rush with like this stuff maybe, and I was definitely that kind of person. So really technical, really geeky music, but the technical part didn't I couldn't understand it, and I didn't I was too young. But what really drew me to to those records were the sounds, and I started connect kind of connecting the dots between like my dad had the synthesizer in the basement that he used for gigs, um, that had a bunch of you know, knobs on it and faders and stuff. And it looked really cool to, you know, a a little boy just looking at it like you would like a spaceship cockpit or something and being like, Oh, okay. That's the, that's the instrument that makes those same weird textures that I like. I think I kind of was like synth pilled from an early age on jazz fusion. 
And what was your dad doing with that synthesizer? You mentioned gigs. What 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 went on there? He was doing um like a, the Russian restaurant circuit in Massachusetts, like in the Dorchester Roxbury area of uh, Massachusetts. This is in the this is in the early eighties through I guess probably through until the early nineties. I guess I don't know exactly when he stopped gigging, but he definitely wasn't making like you know, Tom Sawyer, <laughs> like, happened on his Roland Juno 60. It was a very, like, functional instrument for him. But it was a synthesizer. It wasn't just, like, a keyboard with a bunch of stock organ and, you know, accordion sounds or whatever. So I started messing around with it that way. And, but what was your view of, you know, to me it's interesting. I've interviewed artists who have a parent that was a semi-professional musician, I guess is kind of what, you know, you might call that. And it's, it always, to me, seems like an interesting influence because it sort of paints a picture of a world where it's not all or nothing with music. It's not that you have to do it as a, as a quote-unquote rock star for it to be worth your time because you saw a parent do it just for the love of it and for some income, right? I mean, is that, was that his only job or, or was it a sort of supplemental it was supplemental, but it was also really the only thing that I really could see in my dad other than maybe soccer or whatever that he really enjoyed truly as a kind of like a uh, a part of his soul. But uh, yeah, they were very poor. They were Russian immigrants. They were working day jobs. And my mom had the ability to give piano lessons. So she would do that on the weekends to um, young kids. And my dad was in these like Russian rock bands, these Soviet rock bands in the 60s and 70s. So when he got over to the States with my family in the 80s, he kind of looked around and there was these, there was a lot of, there was a lot of Russians and Polish and sort of Eastern Bloc people in New York and Massachusetts. And um, they would link up and play old songs and stuff like that. And then there's, you know, this restaurant circuit, I guess. And so he would do these gigs for like an extra 50 bucks a week. Like as part of a full, as part of a full band. Yeah, it was him on keyboards, um, his buddy Yuzik, uh, this really, really great um, drummer actually, who uh, one of my earliest members was sitting on Yuzik's lap and he and him kind of showing me like, that's the tom, that's the snare. And um, these beautiful red velvet walls of this Russian restaurant somewhere. Yeah, it was music on drums. It was my dad on keys. There was a singer. Uh, there was a guitarist and a bass player. But my dad was kind of playing bass sometimes on the keyboards, like Ray Manzarek style. And <laughs> and you know they were they were having fun. They were they, there was a kind of a joy to it. Everyone have a drink. You know, it was like a little bit of a kind of way to reconnect with the old country when you're in this like really really different environment. Because how long before you were born had they moved there? I was born uh, the same year that they immigrated. so Wow, big year for them. Yeah, it was really stressful. I always think about, about the sort of um, unconscious uh, sort of psychic reality of being kind of uh, in my mother's womb while she was, you know, actively had to kind of lie to get out of the country and do all of these crazy interviews with, you know, essentially KGB people that were like, well, who are you? Why are you leaving? All this stuff, all that stress. And they told me, they couldn't tell my sister who was very young, she was eight years old already. And they were scared basically that 
you know, she would like snitch at school and tell the other kids or tell a, 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 a snooping like Stasi style teacher, like what was going on um, with their leaving the country because they were essentially defecting, they were running away. And so they lied to their, you know, they had to lie to my sister Alla and say, dude, like, we're just going on a vacation. Like, don't worry about it. And there's this really, really um, touching photo in our photo album of my grandmother hugging my uh, sister the night before they're leaving. And my grandmother, it's on her face. She knows that they might not see each other for a very, very long time. But my my sister ha is glowing and she's so happy because she thinks she's going on a vacation. Whoa, that's intense. And what, was your dad, were your parents psyched when you gravitated toward his synthesizer? Was it, or, or, did, or, was, or were they, you know, and as you began to be more intrigued by, by making music, was that something that excited them? Or, or was there a sense of worry that like, there's no path here, son? It's so smart for you to say that. Yeah. First of all, he was just neurotically like upset that I was messing with this stuff and like uh, erasing his like beloved presets. Which I was doing and just making like dumb space sounds and like Tom Sawyer, like <laughs> resonant filter drops. But um, he wasn't very encouraging about a career in music or the arts in general as most immigrant parents um, that I know. It's a, not a very special story. It's very common, but in a way it was, you know, it kind of further fortified my interest in kind of doing my own thing in a weird way because nobody was really doing the you can do it self 80s self-esteem thing like self-esteem wasn't even a vocabulary word that they were aware of so there is a lot of sort of advantages and disadvantages of growing up like that like there's lots of things I dealt with as a kid that rocked that my friends you know, saddled with like getting grounded and you have to be home and everything's like very puritanical and blah, blah, blah. My parents totally just like, I was like unleashed and that rocked. But at the same time, they were very, very um, kind of overly concerned, I think, for probably good reason about my well-being and every, there's such like a um, focus on surviving and it's, it's a very kind of a practical life. For many immigrants who make that huge leap that's so scary that when they finally land on their feet, it's like, let's just stay here and let's just make this as simple as possible. So me being kind of a freak, you know, my personality, you know, I wasn't like that weird, but I was definitely like, what's going on here? <laughs> um, you know, not really a massive overachiever in the sort of academic sense really, really curious about art all the time. All my friends were, were like the weird kids or whatever. So it was like, I think they were kind of like, uh, this is not going the direction we planned for you, our only son or whatever. Right, when you were really young and just starting to mess with the synthesizer and, and, and begin to feel musical or, or feel music, what, what were the things you were listening to? I mean, you mentioned Rush, but was there yeah. was there more sort of pop radio of the day stuff? And and I also want to talk about the radio thing, which I know is a obviously a massive influence on how you hear sounds. For sure, I think when by the time I was really getting into it, essentially, you know, 
I was in this band that had sort of jam band aspirations and I hated jam bands. And so I was trying to bring the, the group towards things that had a kind of improvisational bent, but was more kind of like, like just better, like cool. So I think at the time, like I was really, really looking for like the deep cut kind of 70s jazz funk records, like weird Donald Byrd stuff and like organ focused stuff, like, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, but I think that was part of it, but I was really, really um, kind of eclectic. Like I had so I had, I seemed to have like um, a friend for every like alternative style of music that was popular. So I had like my grunge friends, I had my like weird raver kid friends in high school that kind of introduced me to that stuff. And all of it had sort of di different, uh, I always wanted this, I always attached myself to the sort of like textural parts of those musics that got me really obsessed with production basically. So if it was me listening to In Utero and thinking about Kurt's, all of his crazy layering and all of his kind of like, like really, really specific and bizarre choices that make this trio sound like symphonic really or if it was um you know like if I'm listening to the radio a lot of the time it was college radio in Boston was really good and I was listening to Emerson radio a lot which had you know tape tape deck Tuesday was a great sort of vintage hip-hop um program that kind of educated me a lot but then every night after midnight would be tons of techno stuff there'd be reggae in the afternoon so making radio mixtapes was equally kind of just um you know I was a very I was a very I I loved I loved music but I didn't want it to to ident I didn't want to identify myself through a type of music and so I gravitated towards just the most extreme the most kind of interesting stuff I could find wherever I could find it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And at that point, though, via having learned how to use the synth, that particular role, and, like, you knew how to sample things. So you were already interested, getting interested in that at that point? Because I also am curious how sort of hearing hearing fully-fledged songs as you're in your, you know, kind of younger mind of processing music, how that kind of gets whittled down to being able to pick up on these micro-elements of things, like you know, that, that could be built into something. Yeah. I got my first sampler in the summer after my, I got a store working, I got a job working as a video store clerk 
and had some money and also had access to all of this, all of these tapes and stuff. And I remember like recording on my little tape machine stuff that we would just pop in and, and, and watch because I was just kind of like feverishly collecting like sounds and stuff. And then the, the older girl that worked there was like, was like, aren't you a musician? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, you don't like, you should just get a sampler. I remember being like, you should just get a sampler. And I was like, oh yeah, sampler. Like, um, so I, I, I was still piecing it together in high school. I don't know if, if I really, really understood, kind of got into the, the, the details of electronic music production until college. But in high school, I was starting to piece it together. And I did somehow, man, I think I went to Daddy's Junkie Music uh, and asked them if they had a sampler. And they gave me this Roland sampler that was, like, very difficult to use. And I remember the first thing I recorded was um, a Return to Forever synth solo. And because I just wanted to hear it over and over this one little chunk before... It got overly like bandy and complex. I just wanted to hear the synth on its own, like looping. So I was sort of piecing it together a little bit. I mean, I guess I mean, even in a more meta way and like zooming out on it and thinking about when you're making music now, the kind of music that you that you make in the mix of this wide swath of sounds is the thing that has like it's a body high versus, you know, it's a combination of a sativa and an indica, right? And I'm curious if, like, that sensa- if there is a sensation associated with it for you, if the things, the sounds that are most sticky to you that you're like, ooh, I, that feels like something, I can turn that into something in a way that only you can hear, you know, until it's actually in a song. Like, yeah, if that's a, if that's a feeling that's developed over time, if, if that is indeed even a sensation, like how it feels to you to for a song to begin to come together. Yeah, no, exactly. And even that, I remember being a kind of a, that was like a, a dual lesson I picked up from DJ Premier and his, the sort of background atmosphere of, of, of the tracks on Moment of Truth and Living Proof, his, his younger cousin's rap record that nobody liked, but it had really good production by him on it. And... My Bloody Valentine Loveless, where there was this gauzy kind of atmospheric 3D body high that you were getting where you couldn't tell what was electronic and what was produced by, you know, by just like the, you know, Kevin's beautiful guitar playing and everything else. And like drum machines that were turned down too low and mixed with real drums and stuff like that. I think those records really, really set me off in that direction. But to your point with, um, you know, that sort of psychedelic nature of listening or the sort of hallucinatory experience of music where it takes on a kind of formal register or shape, smoking weed was definitely a part of that for me because, you know, at like 17, 18 years old or whatever, you start kind of, picking up on all the sort of like hidden frequencies of life when you have that extra sensitivity and you're more embodied and um, the world kind of opens up to you. I mean, I think there was to some degree um, a kind of awakening that way, a kind of psychedelic awakening for me. I don't think you can describe it any other way. Um, and I 
and I definitely carry that with me in a way that's not just for music, but really just a kind of a trying to remain enchanted and try to be as, as human as you can all the time and as present and soak stuff in that's happening with your ears and, uh, and your eyes and everything else. So, so yeah, I think there is, there, there was a kind of a, a, a kind of, hallucinatory enlightenment project that was happening for me at, a, at a, in my teen in my adolescence well yeah and frequencies i think is such the right word for it like you know if you're talking about it from a psychedelic standpoint of when you realize like that you are hearing things you know but not in a like and not in a psychotic way but you're like oh no that you can get to a place where based on where you can hear frequencies and there's music in that i don't even know if you can put it into words but the difference between something that does work as a song or a track for you versus something that's just <laughs> that's just not that that's just like some trippy thing you're hearing like how do you know what is the good base you know what it's going to work as a song because it's not the traditional melody and rhythm thing. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very intuitive thing for me and it's just about being sensitive to, to the to this kind of environment that's being created. Like I used to, um, I used to always think it was funny when I stepped out of my apartment in Bushwick in the early tens, I would, I was kind of like, um, at a distance from Maria Hernandez Park, where but you could still hear it, but it was really, really far away. And I was like, this just sounds like a really well-produced Boards of Canada record, but without the melody. And I would listen to Maria Hernandez Park and be like, this is gorgeous. It's just perfect. And like, um, if, if you let that in, then you're inspired enough to kind of soundtrack those things. But you have to respect that atmosphere first to, and, 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 and it will tell you what's appropriate. Um, and, and a lot of it is in a sense, sort of curatorial that way, where it's like, you're making like a bouquet of flowers. And sometimes like this thing just looks really good next to this other thing. And it's just as simple as that. And I think I've become really much better at that over the years and, and, and melody in a way was always very important to me. But the way that it kind of emerged from texture was where it got exciting. It was like, oh, this kind of incidental sound um, is a rhythm that I'm going to keep really quiet because I'm not trying to shove it down your throat that this breathing is my snare. I'm trying to to trick you i'm trying to fool you into feeling really a little bit uneasy and still very stable at the same time so so there's other things that are just formally things that i've sort of corrected from records that i always thought were good like i think i think like a lot of interesting like sample based music or like um you know plunder phonic music or whatever is like you know, John Oswald's really interesting because, you know, for me, he's interesting because when it works, he's taking two unrelated sounds and finding their kind of, um, the point at which they meet very gracefully and stitching them together in such a way as to make it seem like they really belong together. And all the sort of like, cool political stuff about what it means to sample doesn't matter to me at that moment because it's just so lovely it's so 
I feel so embodied listening to it. So that's the thing that maybe is like less boring to me about sampling is, is, is something that's much harder to talk about. The taking taking things out of context and recontextualizing them, you know, and, and is, you know, is fascinating. And I think, you know, I'm curious as well. Obviously, you are credited as one of the creators of this micro genre known as Vaporwave, which involves dramatic slowing down of, of songs, among other signature elements. But, you know, to me, that is one, one of the reasons that I enjoy that kind of thing is when it when it takes what you like about the song out of context and makes you like something else about it, that it's a similar way of kind of like messing with someone. For sure. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's just like good art in general. It has that effect on me. Like I personally love Jeff Koons and I think he's like, he's a, he has a real trickster attitude. He's, he's really kind of pointing out like the sort of, the things in your psyche that are irresistible even you know to you or whatever <laughs> and it's and to me that's that's the spirit of art it just kind of re embodies you and forces you to be like man i don't really know why i feel i'm just feeling stuff and i think that that's always been interesting to me but yeah the 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 slowing down is also is also great because just as a sort of like formal experience when you when you slow music down you're you're kind of like you're kind of forcing it to to behave you're forcing melody to to behave differently it's just not effective anymore really and it becomes like wildly atmospheric and wildly um cinematic in a way it immediately kind of puts you in this kind of melancholic space because you can't like rush into the idea. You can't rush around the melody. So suddenly you're in kind of just like stretched space and it becomes closer to something like a landscape painting or something than a song. And that's really, really interesting where you, when you can kind of use technology to shift around your expectations for the material kind of um, experience of music. Israeli. Right. But also the like, I can't help but think again about the like sensory reaction that that kind of thing evokes, which is that which is like, is it confusion or is it calm? You know, is it agitating to someone to have a song be quote unquote too slow in a way that is creates anxiety? Or is it soothing if you just let it wash over you? You know, it's kind of like paranoia that way, I guess. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And, and, uh, you know, as a composer, it's always really interesting because I'm like, well, okay, music isn't like this punitive thing. I'm not trying to like waste 17 minutes of your life with a drone piece, but maybe I am. So like, what's that about? Like, so it is kind of interesting. Like, what are we really here to do? Like to, if we're listening to an extended drone piece or some kind of aleatory music piece or whatever, what is the measure of it? What functionally what are we talking about here? Is it, are we, am I inviting you into my world to kind of discover something very specific or am I creating some kind of situation where you create your own kind of uh, framework to be imaginative? And, you know, that was really like, that was a big question for, for minimalism in a way, right? It was like, how kind is the, can the composer be? Is this like, composer's totally missing, right? But of course... No, they, they're making their 
kind of aesthetic choices or curatorial choices. They're, they're part, participating in a kind of conceptual practice of democratizing music, which is very, you know, that's a signature thing to be involved in, I would say. Yeah. But I mean, you're also, you're also, you know, a, a prolific artist. And um, I wonder if, yeah, like at a certain point you have to not, it, obviously you're very thoughtful about these things, but when you're deciding what to put on an album or what to release or not, um, it feels like you're just sort of generous with it. It's like, you can't, how much can you dissect to, you know, it's like, it sounds good to you. You made it. You're like, yeah, this is, you know. Yeah, straight up. But I think that was something that was a kind of a journey that took, you know, I think I was a little bit more precocious and I would want to rationalize these sort of decisions much more when I was younger and try to understand them more now. And now it really is a very direct one-to-one thing where it's like, look, I'm, I have good taste. I'm going to entertain myself. And anyone that's, that's with it is going to go along for the ride. Anyone that's not, it's just not this, this moment or this album just isn't for them. And that's made, that's made the process of creating records for me to be a lot, a lot more exciting because... I'm not so sort of caught up in, in meanings as much anymore as, as, as much as I am sort of my intuition and trusting myself and kind of letting, uh, you know, I think, I think to some degree artists make stuff because they want to be understood, but there's lots of different ways to, to kind of be understood and, right now for me it's kind of to just I I guess to be as honest as I can to my taste and the things that kind of enthuse me and so trying to do something that just because it's challenging musically wasn't really at the forefront of my imagination recently at least yeah yeah totally um, and what, so what do you have kind of on the books for the rest of this year? Are you, do you have any recordings in progress currently and what are you excited about for the remainder of 2021? There's still a lot I want to do with the new record, you know, seeing how I can perform it has been a kind of a challenge for me and I want to keep kind of digging into that and seeing what's possible, but I haven't really loved the whole, the, the sort of like live streaming thing that much like so you know I'll show up and I'll try to you know and it's like okay I'm in a chat room with people and somebody's like in their studio and they're kind of playing but I don't know it's too it's like perversely uh intimate in a way that I really don't like I like the magic I like the the magic of music I like being fooled I like the grand the grandiose nature of a crazy music video I like a big show I like a spectacle if I can do it, if I can pull it off. So um, I've just been doing like mini score projects. Like I just finished a uh, something for HBO where I did uh, sort of revamped some old music and did some original music for a documentary about the um, the cruise ship where there was that the the first massive Corona, yeah, the Princess Cruise. So uh, that was very interesting because it's you're really seeing. Who, who is on that ship? You're seeing iPhone, cell phone footage of everyone's lives as they're sort of locked down on this boat that they were trying to just like have a good time on and now are just stuck on getting sick. And you're seeing the workers and what their lives are like. And um, 
it's a very fascinating little documentary. And there's there's a few there's a there's a, a short um, um, film that I'm gonna do that's um, animated that just things to sort of that I find interesting just to keep kind of busy that that I can kind of do um, at a high level given all of the circumstances you know it's like I can't really see myself doing big projects necessarily so I'm just trying to sort of keep the keep my knife sharp yeah and sort of and and do like I don't know cut like just get back to basics of like for me it's been a really good time to do like songwriting stuff and learn and to like educate myself on stuff that I was looking at Berkeley courses online um a couple days ago because I was like well you know if not now when like maybe I should just what kind of a course a harmony course yeah so that I could just kind of get a little bit better at, at just a keyboard course, basically. Just to kind of um, stay sharp. I have to sort of close by asking, since we talked about uh, your parents being concerned that this wasn't a livelihood to be pursuing. I mean, at some point they must have come around, right? And seen that, like, for Daniel, this is working out. I think it's safe to say that at this point they've, it's, it's, they've accepted it. They are, you know... They're still very practical, let's put it that way. So they're like, everything's good. You're paying your rent. They're blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Forget about them for a minute. I mean, for you at this point, you, I, I'm hoping that you're feeling a little bit in the afterglow of recent events and, and uh, having a moment of being like, yeah, being myself was the right choice. Yeah, being myself rocks. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 59. I'm Jenny Ellescu. Thanks again to Daniel Lopatin, and thank you for listening. Episode 60 in a few weeks features a chat with Flaming Lips main man Wayne Coyne. Very excited to share that one. If you're not already subscribed to LSQ, please go ahead and do that. And when you have questions or feedback, you can reach me on Twitter at Jenny LSQ. 